All right. Good morning. Great to be with you guys. I was here back in 2017. How many of you have been at the church since then? Okay. How many of you won't raise your hand this morning no matter what I ask? Any of you? Okay. A couple of you? Okay. <laughs> well, hey, it's great to be back with you guys. Again, my name is Charlie Campbell. I always feel right at home at a Calvary Chapel. My home church is a Calvary Chapel uh, down near San Diego where I live with my wife and five kids. But uh, flew in yesterday into San Jose, and uh, I'm happy to be here this morning with you to open up God's Word. I don't recall in my email correspondence Pastor Bill asking me to speak on a specific topic. So we're not going to look at 10 reasons to trust the Bible this morning, but we are going to talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Um, and we'll dive in here shortly, and I'll let you know exactly what we're going to be looking at. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I would like to go ahead and pray one more time as well. Heavenly Father, what a blessing to gather together as your people and to open up your word together. And as we do that this morning, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and teach us and that you would encourage us in the faith, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would equip us for uh, conversations with people who doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible. So bless this time. Have your way here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 16 and 17. Notice what Paul writes. He says, all scripture, not, not some of it or most of it. He says, all of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul says here that all scripture, all of the documents that God determined would make up the contents of the Bible are the inspired word of God. That is to say that although the books of the Bible were written by men, they were written by men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. And as a result, they are absolutely trustworthy in all that they teach. Now, of course, critics of Christianity today would have a problem. They do have a problem with Paul's declaration here. They don't think the Bible's a book of inspiration at all but a book of mythology and, you know, an ancient book of legends. Well, those who have that opinion regarding the Bible have overlooked the fact that there is a wealth of evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. I have here in mind things like hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, the Bible's incredible internal harmony, historical confirmation that we've discovered in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that have verified details in the Bible. Uh, there's been lots of scientific discoveries that have verified details in the Bible. There was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947, which give us the assurance we have accurate copies of the Bible. Uh, there's the writings of ancient historians like Flavius Josephus and Cornelius Tacitus who verify lots of details in the New Testament. So this kind of evidence can be brought together and build a very compelling case for the trustworthiness of the Bible. 
uh, during a previous visit here, we did kind of an overview of that kind of evidence for the Bible. That's why I thought, you know what, let's, let's do a little bit more of a deep dive this morning into one particular line of evidence. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the archaeological evidence for the Bible. The archaeological evidence for the Bible, I talked about this for, you know, maybe five or ten minutes during a previous visit, but I'd like to do a little bit of a deeper dive on this subject this morning with the hope that you will leave here having a stronger confidence in the reliability of the Bible perhaps than ever before, but also that God would use this to help equip you with some interesting facts and details about discoveries that have verified the, the Bible uh, that you can bring up in future conversations with your non-Christian friends and family members. We'll start by looking at some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament, starting all the way back with the ancient art of writing. The ancient art of writing. Many critics of the Bible used to claim that the art of writing was unknown in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. They confidently assured people that the age of Moses was an age of illiteracy. Some scholars even asserted that writing wasn't even invented until about 500 years after the time of Moses. And because that was allegedly the case, critics of the Bible said Moses surely could not have written the first five books of the Bible. And with that, they thought they blew up the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Moses couldn't write, kaboom, there goes the Bible. And who are you to question us with the PhDs, you know? <clears throat> well, Jews and Christians did question their conclusions, and I'm glad they did because years later, great libraries of written tablets were unearthed at the ruins in this ancient city of Ur, in Iraq, that demonstrated writing was around long before Moses and even long before the birth of Abraham. This particular tablet there on the screen with writing on it was pulled up out of the ruins in Ur, Abraham's ancient hometown, and been dated to about 2000 BC. That's 500 years before Moses. Uh, but thousands of these ancient texts have now been found. Here's another one dating back to 1750, again, uh, long before the time of Moses. So the critics' allegations that writing didn't even exist at the time of Moses have now been left in a pile of ashes, as many of their attacks on the Bible have been, as we'll continue to see. All right, so moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about one of the major events Moses wrote about, the Genesis flood. The Genesis flood. The Bible tells us that God judged the ancient world for their widespread wickedness with a cataclysmic flood that devastated the planet. If this event happened, as Moses said, and as Jesus and Peter affirm, surely there should be some evidence for it, and there is. In addition to the geological and fossil evidence for the flood, archeologists have unearthed several ancient non-biblical writings describing a catastrophic flood. Of course, after the flood, as Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world, they took their memories of the flood with them. 
and pass those memories down to their children who pass them down to their kids and on and on it went. And so it's fascinating for students of the Bible to learn that there are more than 200 accounts of a cataclysmic flood outside the Bible in the ancient records of the Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Hindus, Chinese, Mexican, Algonquins, Hawaiians, and others. Although these different accounts have some differences among them, the similarities are striking. Consider this list of similarities between the flood account in the Old Testament and the flood account known as the Gilgamesh epic unearthed in the ancient ruins of a library at Nineveh. In both accounts, the biblical account and the Gilgamesh epic, the flood was divinely planned. The flood was connected with the defection of the human race from God or the gods. Advance notice of the flood was given to one individual. There was instruction to build a boat. The boat was covered with a waterproofing pitch, a tar-like substance inside and out. A storm brought on the flood. The boat builder's family and animals aboard the boat were preserved. Everyone not on the boat was destroyed. The boat came to rest atop a mountain. Birds were then sent out to uh, determine if the world was habitable and sacrifices were offered after the flood. Sound familiar? All of that's in the Gilgamesh epic. Well, with so many similarities between the biblical account and the Gilgamesh epic, you can see why many scholars have concluded that both of these accounts point back to one common event, the devastating flood recorded for us in the book of Genesis. If you'd like to learn more about evidence for the flood, I'll point you to our website. If you're a note taker or have your camera handy, you might jot it down, always be ready. Dot com. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, as Christians, we are always to be ready to make a defense, to give people reasons for the hope that we have. Thus, the name of our ministry, always be ready. But on our homepage, we've got an A to Z menu. And you can go down to the F's and just click on flood and find all kinds of articles and research there on that topic. Moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about the ancient city of Jericho. The ancient city of Jericho, Jericho is about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea and five miles west of the Jordan River. It's well remembered as the city the Israelites marched around for seven days before God caused the walls to fall down. Well, there was an exciting discovery made in the 1950s. Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, found the fallen walls of an ancient fortified city at Jericho, but there was a problem. Kenyon claimed that the ancient city of Jericho was destroyed around 1550 BC. Why was that a problem? Well, because a biblical chronology places the destruction of Jericho closer to 1400 BC, long after Kenyon's conclusions. Well, of course, critics of the Bible loved Kathleen Kenyon's claim, and for 30 or 40 years, they would cite her claims, her conclusion, as proof that Joshua's conquest of Jericho was pure legend, as recorded in the Bible. But Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions have now fallen on hard times. In a story featured in Time Magazine, I love the title, Score One for the Bible, 
we read of how a newer examination by archaeologists of ancient Canaanite pottery found in the ruins at Jericho has demonstrated that Jericho was conquered around 1400 BC, the very time the Old Testament dates the crossing of the Hebrew people into the land of Canaan. Discoveries at Jericho that correspond perfectly with the biblical account include the following, and the Time Magazine article mentioned these, uh, the collapsed walls of the city, mentioned in Joshua 6, verse 20. There's evidence that the walls collapsed at the time the city was destroyed, not later, for example, under age and decay. There's evidence that the city was massively destroyed by fire, as indicated in Joshua 6, verse 24. And there's evidence that the destruction occurred at harvest time in the spring. Archaeologists came to that conclusion after finding large quantities of grain stored in the city. So all of these discoveries by archaeologists at Jericho correspond perfectly with the biblical account. As the Time Magazine article said, score one for the Bible. Uh, let's see what the score is in about 30 minutes. <laughs> it's going to be a blowout. All right, so moving along, another discovery has to do with David, the second king of Israel. And by the way, these aren't actual portraits. In case you're wondering, someone asked me that once. <laughs> now, up until 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside of the Bible that David ever existed. So it had become fashionable within some academic circles to dismiss the David stories as mere inventions. The critics' verdict was that David was nothing more than a figure of religious and political mythology. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this nearly 3,000-year-old inscription was discovered in the ancient ruins of Dan in northern Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. It's on display today at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But this was an amazing discovery and helped to verify for the first time outside of the Bible that David was a real historical figure. Time Magazine, again, rightly acknowledged that in light of that discovery, the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Indeed it is. Uh, let's talk next about Nineveh. If you've read the book of Jonah, you're familiar with the ancient city of Nineveh. The Old Testament tells us that God directed a Hebrew prophet by the name of Jonah, to go to that ancient city. His message was of coming judgment because the people were exceedingly wicked. Well, if you know the story, the people repented and God delayed his judgment of the city. If you read Nahum, though, they returned to their wickedness and God dealt with them uh, later on. But was Nineveh a legendary city, perhaps? Just part of a big fish story? Some critics of the Bible once thought so, until the British archaeologist Austin Layard unearthed it. The city, once the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire, has now been extensively excavated. Remains of its walls, temples, palaces, library, moats, and defenses still survive on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul 
in northern Iraq. One of the fascinating discoveries at Nineveh, and there were hundreds, was this six-sided clay prism known as the Shennacherib prism. It speaks of the Assyrian king Shennacherib's invasion of Judah, the one you've read about in 2 Kings and the book of Isaiah during the reign of Hezekiah. And it corroborates many of the details in the biblical account. It's on display today at the British Museum in London. If you ever go to England, definitely carve out at least half a day for the British Museum. They have lots of artifacts there on display that verify details in the Bible. This is one of them. But speaking of King Hezekiah, let's talk for a minute or two about him and his life-saving tunnel. Hezekiah was one of Judah's better kings. He's written about in several places in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that during his reign, Hezekiah ordered a tunnel to be built to secretly channel water from outside Jerusalem's main wall into Jerusalem where people could then safely collect water during an enemy's siege on the city. Well, in December of 2015, just about eight years ago or so, archaeologists announced that they had unearthed this 2,700-year-old clay seal with an impression in it from King Hezekiah's signet ring, the ring that he would wear to put his stamp of approval on documents and orders and things that were being made. It was unearthed in the ruins immediately south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The ancient Hebrew script there on the impression says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This confirms for us that Hezekiah was a real person, even the son of King Ahaz, just as the Old Testament indicates. Amazing. But long before that exciting discovery, the tunnel that Hezekiah built in 2 Kings chapter 20 was discovered. Considered an engineering marvel, Hezekiah's tunnel <clears throat> winds through nearly 2,000 feet of limestone bedrock right underneath the city of Jerusalem. It was dug by two teams of tunnelers who worked from opposite ends and then met in the middle where they made an inscription in the wall to commemorate the tunnel's completion. Well, if you go to Israel, and, I'm, and some of you probably have, on a, on a typical tour, the tour guide will take you through this tunnel. And you're happy to, well, a lot of people you know, think this is a, a great thrill, unless you're cla claustrophobic. Uh, because the ceiling is low and water often runs through the tunnel, just as it was designed to do, sometimes all the way up to your waist. So it's not for the claustrophobic or the faint at heart, uh, because it's pitch black inside, you know, without your flashlight. So. But what a thrill to walk through the very tunnel written about in 2 Kings chapter 20, built 800 years before Jesus was even born. It's still there in Jerusalem today. Amazing. All right, moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about this man, King Nebuchadnezzar and the ancient city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was about 605 BC. The Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem and then took many of the Jews, including Daniel, back to the city of Babylon in modern day Iraq. Was Babylon a legendary city? 
Was Nebuchadnezzar a mythological person? Is the scripture's account of the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem just some fabrication? Well, of course, the answer is no to all of those questions. Today, 55 miles south of Baghdad, you can see the excavated ruins of Babylon. Archaeologists have unearthed the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, temples to his god Marduk, city walls, houses, pots, pans, metal objects, stone carvings, cuneiform inscriptions, almost all belonging to the very time Nebuchadnezzar ruled there as the king. <clears throat> in fact, several of the nearly 15 million baked bricks used in the construction of the royal administrative buildings bear the inscription, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We even have surviving likenesses of Nebuchadnezzar. By that, I, I mean archaeologists have, di have discovered what he looked like in a, a handful of different discoveries. That one on the screen is just one example. And in addition to these discoveries, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets that contain a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history. They're known to scholars today as the Babylonian Chronicle Tablets. And amazingly, these Babylonian records tell us of their siege against Jerusalem, the one you've read about in 2 Kings chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 1. And that's not all. They also confirm the fact that the Babylonians took the Jewish people captive back to Babylon. This just goes to show that the authors of the Bible were telling us the truth about these matters. While we're on the topic of Babylon, let's talk for a minute about this man, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, why don't you turn back to the Old Testament uh, book of Daniel with me. I'll put it on the screen, but I think it'd be good for you to see this in your own Bibles. Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we are introduced for the first time to a king by the name of Belshazzar. He ruled after Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel tells us about him in verse 1. He says, Belshazzar, the king, the king of Babylon, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So he has this huge party. Now, this was a terrible time to be throwing a party. The city was actually under siege by the Medes and the Persians at this very instant. But maybe to assure his people that everything was fine, he throws a big party for all the people that are in charge of the Babylonian empire. Well, while this massive party was going on, Belshazzar sees a human hand, writes a mysterious message on the wall that no one was able to interpret. And this was terrifying to him. This was not something that normally happened to see a hand just appear and start writing on the wall. This was something God was doing. Well, Daniel was called in to help interpret the message and the message was given that Belshazzar's kingdom was done. God had had just about enough with this wicked king. And the Bible goes on to tell us in verse 30 that that very night, Belshazzar was killed and the city of Babylon passed into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. 
an ancient Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, who was born around 480 BC, tells us that the Persians gained entry into Babylon by diverting the Euphrates River that flowed into the city, and then the army came into the city on its or through its riverbed. Well, this passage of scripture, Daniel chapter 5, was long the target of critics' canons. They considered Daniel's references to a king by the name of Belshazzar to be pure invention and a historical blunder. Why is that? Well, because the name Belshazzar could not be found anywhere outside of the Bible and the ancient historians, Barossus and Alexander Polyhistor, said that the last king of the Babylonian Empire was a man named, not Belshazzar, like the Bible says, but a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus. And so critics of the Bible for decades would point this out to Christians and other people who took the Bible seriously and say, you're so foolish for taking this stuff seriously. The author of the book of Daniel obviously just made up the name Belshazzar. How can you believe this stuff? And of course, they seem to have a case. We've got two ancient historians who say that it was a man by the name of Nabonidus, not Belshazzar, like this one guy says in the, in the book of Daniel. Well, people took that claim seriously until archeologists unearthed this inscription. This Babylonian tablet there on the screen tells us that when King Nabonidus left Babylon for a multi-year stay in the Arabian oasis town of Tima, about 450 miles away, he entrusted the rule of the Babylonian empire into the hands of, guess who? Belshazzar, his eldest son. What do you know? Daniel was right. Sometimes it just takes historians and archaeologists thousands of years to catch up with the Bible. All right, let's talk about one more discovery that has a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament, and then we'll switch gears and talk about some New Testament discoveries. This one, if you're a note taker, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in Qumran, north and to the west of the Dead Sea in Israel, made an amazing discovery while looking for a lost goat. There in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this 12-year-old boy discovered a collection of large clay jars containing carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. What this boy stumbled upon was an ancient collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the third century before Christ. This was truly an amazing discovery. Archaeologists were called in. They spent years searching the surrounding caves. By the time they were done, copies of every book of the Old Testament had been found, with the exception of Esther. In some cases, there were multiple copies of the same book. For example, they found 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of the Psalms, about 220 scrolls 
biblical scrolls in totality. What you're seeing right now on the screen is a photograph of one of the original clay jars and a close-up of one of the scrolls of Isaiah. This particular scroll has been dated to at least 100 years before Jesus' birth. They opened it up upon its discovery. It was 26 feet long, not a single chapter missing. The entire book of Isaiah. Now, why do I mention the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, because the Dead Sea Scrolls and thousands of other manuscripts dating back to the time of the early church have allowed biblical scholars, translators, and textual experts to recover with a very high degree of certainty the text of the Bible that Jesus quoted and the early Christians used 2,000 years ago. That's an amazing discovery there. I write more about the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the ancient manuscript copies of the Bible in my book, Scrolls and Stones, if you'd like to learn more about that. But let's switch gears now and talk for a little bit about some discoveries that have a bearing on the trustworthiness of the New Testament. The New Testament. One of the first people we're introduced to in the New Testament is King Herod. King Herod, the Bible tells us that Herod was the king in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth and that he tried to have Jesus killed shortly after he was born. Was he a legendary figure, perhaps? No. In addition to the fact that the first century historian Flavius Josephus wrote about him, a wealth of archaeological evidence has confirmed his existence. Discoveries include this piece of a wine jug dating back to 19 BC that was uncovered at Masada, Herod's cliffside palace fortress overlooking the Dead Sea there in the background. The inscription on the jug includes a reference to Herod and his full title, Herod, King of Judea. Other discoveries include coins with Herod's name on them, Herod's desert palace south of Jericho, and his hilltop palace south of Jerusalem, known as the Herodium. If you go to Israel today, you can walk around the ruins of that palace. It's still there uh, 2,000 years later. But these discoveries support the New Testament accounts and leave no doubt that Herod was a real historical figure and that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Gospels, the king of Judea. All right, how about John the Baptist? Is there any good evidence that he was a real person? The New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Sometime later, an executioner was called in and John was beheaded. You're familiar with, <clears throat> familiar with that. Well, this has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Where so? In the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian. In his Antiquities of the Jews, which is publicly, it's in the public domain now. You can look it up online if you'd like to later. He writes all about Herod Antipas and Herod's adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist. Here's a short excerpt for you on the screen. Notice who he mentions there in the top line. He says, John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. 
Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent him a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. So notice that Josephus verifies for us that John the Baptist was a real person in Israel in the first century with an enormous influence on the people before he was imprisoned and put to death by Herod Antipas, just as the New Testament tells us. Well, archaeologists have discovered the very palace John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded in. Josephus said that the palace was called Machaerus there in that quote. On the screen, well, archaeologists have finally found it and begun excavating it. It's on top of that hill overlooking the Dead Sea there in the background. Excavations there are ongoing and probably will be for, for many years. But in the meantime, archaeologists have created this cutaway rendering of what the palace would have looked like in the first century. And walking around the ruins today, as you're as a tour group are allowed to do, you can see some of the remains of its massive walls and columns and mosaic floors. There's this elaborate bath there. Uh, there's an aqueduct that holds water. There's, you know, cisterns to hold water. This is the very place John the Baptist spent his final days. An amazing find there. All right, moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about this man, Caiaphas. The New Testament tells us that the name of the Jewish high priest at the time of Jesus was a man by the name of Caiaphas. He was the one who presided over that late night trial wherein Jesus confessed himself to be the Messiah and of course where he was then uh, condemned. It was also in the courtyard of Caiaphas's home, the Bible says, that Peter denied knowing who Jesus was. Well, there was an exciting discovery back in 1990. It was then that a team of construction workers building a water park approximately two miles south of Jerusalem accidentally unearthed a first century Jewish burial cave. Because of its enormous weight, the bulldozer unintentionally fell through the roof of the cave that they didn't even know was underneath. Well, archaeologists were called in, and inside that cave, they found several bone ossuaries, stone boxes that the Jews used to collect the bones of the deceased. Well, on one of the uncharacteristically ornate ossuaries, that one on the screen, was an inscription in Aramaic mentioning Caiaphas's full name, first and last, Joseph Caiaphas, the very name Flavius Josephus reported that he went by. That ossuary is on display today in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. You can walk through the museum and go right up to it. And I'm amazed they don't even have it behind glass. When they took the lid off of that ossuary, Caiaphas's bones were still in the ossuary. The very bones of a person you've read about in the New Testament. They have since reburied uh, his bones, as is their tradition. But amazing to see that up close with your own eyes. All right, moving along, let's talk about this man for a couple of minutes, Pontius Pilate. You've read about him. The New Testament tells us that he was the Roman governor who oversaw Jesus' trial and then sentenced him to death by crucifixion. Might he have been a legendary figure, just some villain that the biblical writers invented? No, in 1961, archaeologists were digging here in Caesarea on the shore of the beautiful 
Mediterranean Sea there in Israel. While they were clearing away the sand and the overgrowth from the jumbled ruins of this ancient Roman theater, these archaeologists made an astounding discovery. They found this limestone block about three feet tall with an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century mentioning Pontius Pilate, prefect or governor of Judea. So this was an amazing find. This inscription verified for us that Pontius Pilate was a real person, uh, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Bible, and as a prefect or governor, he would have indeed had the authority to pardon or condemn Jesus, just as the gospel accounts report. So there's good evidence for Herod, the king, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, Pontius Pilate, the governor. What about this person? Jesus. Well, there's plenty of written evidence for Jesus's life. In addition to the 27 documents in the New Testament that tell us about his life and the 39 documents in the Old Testament that told us he was coming, more than 30 non-biblical sources mention Jesus within 150 years of his life, including Roman historians like Suetonius, Cornelius Tacitus, and Flavius Josephus, as well as the Jewish Talmud. So the written evidence for Jesus's life is very strong, but what about stones or coins or inscriptions? Have archeologists found anything mentioning Jesus along those lines? Well, the answer is yes. On November 5th, 2005, Israeli archeologists announced an amazing discovery in Megiddo in Northern Israel, a prison inmate at a maximum security prison, unearthed the remains of one of the oldest Christian churches ever discovered. You never know what a prisoner might find if you just give them some free time and a shovel out in the prison yard. I think, I think they need to pass out more shovels. So everywhere they dig over there, there's, there's amazing stuff. But while digging around in the prison yard, Ramil Rosillo, that was the prisoner's name, he discovered a 16 by 32 foot Greek style mosaic floor that bore an inscription mentioning that the building had been built in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ. This was the first uncontested archeological discovery mentioning Jesus by name. Not only does this discovery help reinforce the fact that Jesus existed, it underscores what we have long known. The earliest Christians believed Jesus was God. That church was built in the memory, it said, of the God Jesus Christ, not the good teacher Jesus or the angel Jesus. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses will knock on your door and seek to convince you that Jesus is not God. He was just Michael the archangel. Not, not anybody special, just one of the angels. Well, that's not what the early Christians believed. They believed that Jesus was God. And in fact, they built their church and dedicated it to the God, Jesus Christ. That's what the inscription says. Amazing. Great discovery. What about first century crucifixion? According to the Bible, Jesus' hands or wrists were nailed to the cross. You know that. But you know, at one time, critics of the Bible said that crucifixions with nails never even took place in Israel in the first century. They said there's no evidence they happened and nails wouldn't hold up the weight of the bodies. 
Well, they were shown to be wrong again when a crew of builders accidentally discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery in the city of Jerusalem. It contained the remains of several men killed during the Jewish revolt against Rome in approximately AD 70. One of the bone ossuaries there in that ancient cemetery contained the skeleton of a young man and an inscription of the man's name. This is on display at the Israel Museum as well. But what stunned archaeologists most was how this man had died. He was put to death by crucifixion with nails. How was that determined? Well, he still had an iron spike driven through his heel bone. On the screen, you're seeing the actual heel bone with the original spike. You'll notice the head of the spike on the left and the bent tip on the right. Now, the Romans typically removed the nails from their victims, and for good reason. Iron was expensive. But this nail apparently was too difficult to remove. The tip of the nail had been bent back toward the head, likely the result of hitting a knot in the wood. And so the Roman soldiers just left it there. And I'm so glad they did. Because now, 2,000 years later, we have solid archaeological evidence that the Romans did crucify people in Israel with nails, just like the Bible says they did. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider one last bit of evidence. Obviously, lots more could be said about this. This is kind of a flyover tour this morning of some of this kind of evidence. But let's talk about uh, people and places mentioned by Luke. People and places mentioned by Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us of the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. In his detailed accounts, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine different islands, the name of seaports and names and titles of priests and political leaders, the deities that certain people worship, very detailed. If you've read the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Was Luke just making these things up? Some critics of the Bible once thought so. Hans Konzelman, the author of a book I don't recommend, History of Primitive Christianity, he declared the book of Acts, and this is a solid European scholar, he, he claimed the book of Acts was a made-up story from beginning to end. Critics believe that Luke concocted his narrative from the rambling of his imagination, another critic said, because he ascribes odd titles to authorities. He mentions governors that no one knew. One of the supposed heirs that they used to point to can be found in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Luke tells us there that John the Baptist's preaching ministry was taking place when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. And then he goes on to mention a couple of other guys and where they reigned. But then at the end of that verse, he mentions another guy by the name of Lysanias. And he says, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Now, I personally like Luke's style. He doesn't just say, hey, John the Baptist showed up one day and, you know, he was preaching. He, he, he's seeking to make his claims testable. 
and he's grounding his claims in verifiable historical details. He says, let me tell you a little bit about what was going on in the Roman Empire when this man John showed up on the scene. And he says, this guy was ruling here, and this guy was in charge over here, and this guy over here, and him, and, this, and that's what was happening. Okay, but one of those guys he mentions is Lysanias. Well, for years, scholars pointed to that mention of Lysanias as evidence that Luke didn't know what he was talking about since all of the you know, historians knew that Lysanias was not a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of a different region by the name of Chalcis, hundreds of miles away, half a century earlier. And so they said, if Luke can't get that basic fact right, nothing he's written can be trusted. And a host of critics accused Luke of making a gross chronological blunder, among other things. Well, John McRae, a veteran archaeologist who's overseen excavations in Israel, explains how archaeology finally vindicated Luke. He said an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius, from A.D. 14 to 37, which names who? Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abala. That's another name for Abilene near Damascus, just as Luke had written. It turned out there had been two government officials named Lysanias. Once more, Luke was shown to be exactly right, end quote. So it turns out that it was the critics who made the gross chronological blunder, not Luke. And this is just one example of how archaeology has vindicated Luke and proved him to be right. In fact, more than 80 details in the book of Acts alone have now been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Amazing. Now, we've looked at several different discoveries this morning. How do you remember any of this? How do you bring this out into a real, real life conversation with someone who maybe questions the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, let me give you a little memory aid that will help you recall five of the discoveries we've talked about this morning. It's the acronym PICS, which I think works well because a PIC is something that archaeologists will use in their excavations. If you, can, if you can hold on to that little acronym, you can walk a person through five of the different discoveries we've talked about today. And maybe that'll be helpful. What does the P remind us of? The Pontius Pilate inscription found at Caesarea, there in that ancient Roman theater. Okay? The Pontius Pilate inscription. The I is a reminder of the Isaiah scroll and the ancient copies of the Old Testament found at Qumran. The C reminds us of the Christ mosaic, that mosaic floor that was unearthed on the grounds of that prison in Megiddo that mentions the God, Jesus Christ. The K reminds us of the King David inscription, the King David inscription unearthed at Dan in northern Israel. It's on display today in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. And the S can remind you of the Roman spike in the heel of a first century Jewish crucifixion victim. 
So perhaps that will be helpful to you. I hate to just overload you with a bunch of information and it's just like, how do I even, how do I even share this? So I hope that that will be a little helpful tool to you. Brothers and sisters, I tell you about these discoveries this morning because I want to remind you that you can trust the Bible. You can read the Bible today with the highest degree of confidence. And what a blessing it is to have this book to guide us through this life and all the way into everlasting life in God's eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Will you be with, with us there in heaven? Have you had your sins forgiven? You can. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross. Because of his great love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place to suffer the judgment you deserve for your sins so that you could be forgiven. So that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with your maker. But he didn't stay in that grave. Three days later, he walked out. And today he offers all of humanity the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. What a gracious offer. God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and condemnation for our sins. And God says, actually, I've got something way better for you. <laughs> Everlasting life and the forgiveness of all your sins. That's what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. And God offers it now to humanity as a free gift. How do you lay hold of that offer? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. God's done all the work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And you can do that today. If you need to get right with God, you can call out to him before you walk out of this place and just pray something like, God, thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I am placing my trust today in Jesus Christ. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. If you need to get right with God, today's the day. Your life could come to a screeching halt much sooner than you're anticipating. I was going over my Bible study about two weeks ago on a Saturday night, getting ready to teach the next morning, and my phone rings. It's about 7 p.m. Hey, Dad, it's my 17-year-old daughter who had just left the house 10 minutes earlier with my 14-year-old son to go play pickleball. Hey, Dad, we just got in an accident. It's pretty bad. You should come down. I was out the door. I'm thinking fender bender. I showed up at the crash scene, head-on collision, 50 miles an hour, with a 19-year-old kid who was racing illegally, crossed double yellow lines, right into my two youngest kids. And miraculously, they only had some scratches and bruises. And him too, he survived. So it, it, the story has a happy ending there. And, and my wife got to share the gospel with him. And you know, I think that might've been one of the reasons God allowed that to happen. <laughs> the kid that hit our kids wasn't a believer, but it was a reminder to me when I showed up to the crash scene and the front end of the car was smashed into the dashboard. It looked like an accordion. It reminded me of the brevity of life and how quickly a person's life can come to an end. They stare death in its face by like a matter of an inch or two. All the, all the windows were shattered, airbags had all gone off. Amazing that they lived. God was merciful to them. 
That could happen to you. Are you right with your maker? Or will you be standing before him on the day of judgment, drenched in your sins? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. God forbid you hear those words. So stop putting it off. If you need to get right with God, today's the day. Call out to him. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, I encourage you, continue in the faith. Picking up and meditating on the words in this book often. Knowing that the Bible truly is the word of God. Trustworthy from Genesis to Revelation. From cover to cover. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a blessing to open up God's word with you this morning. If you enjoy learning about archaeological discoveries that have a bearing on the trustworthiness of the Bible, you'll enjoy a book on the topic. I do have some of those out there at my book table. Everything I shared with you this morning is pulled out of that book. It's called Archaeological Evidence for the Bible. It's got about 100 color photographs in it of these kinds of discoveries. Uh, I also know that many teenagers today are not going to pick up a book that looks like that. They're, they think a book report will be due if they read that thing. So, you know, a couple years ago, I thought, well, what if I was to write some fun-to-read novels, fast-paced, action-packed thrillers that revolve around teenage characters, and then I sprinkle in some of this kind of evidence for the Bible into the storyline? I thought maybe young people would read a book like that. And so that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years, is writing thrillers for teenagers that sprinkle in evidence for God, evidence for the Bible, and so on into the storyline. So part one here, Dakota Knox and the Archaeology Thief. Dakota Knox is a 17-year-old kid who goes to Israel with his family to do a tour, but there's a heist at the Israeli Museum while they're there. Some of those artifacts we talked about today are stolen, and he and his new friends on the tour think they know who did it, and it leads to all kinds of danger and, you know, stuff that's fun to read through. So... We've got some of those if you have a teenager. I'll highlight some other books I brought with me. One-Minute Answers to Skeptics. Short, concise, one-minute ways of answering what I think are atheists' top 50 objections to God and the Bible. Uh, another book, Evidence for God. I lay out five different lines of evidence for God's existence. If you've got an atheist in your life, maybe that you're trying to persuade, that, might, that book would be helpful to you. Uh, a brand new book, it's called The End Times and Beyond. Uh, this looks at Bible prophecy. What does the Bible say about the last days? And I narrow it down to 10, uh, an overview of 10 upcoming events, major events in Bible prophecy and lay them out in chronological order for you in that book. Another uh, new teenager novel, it's called Treachery on Celestia. This is a brand new book. It just came out about two weeks ago. This is another thriller for teens, but it's a futuristic thriller that lays out a defense of the Christian faith in the, in the, in the storyline. If you've got young kids, there's some books out there for your five to 11-year-olds. These are color, full-color picture books, stories that talk about evidence for God and evidence for the Bible at their level. Fun to read. And then one last thing I'll point out is we've got a bunch of DVDs out there on the table. We know all of you donated your DVD player to the Salvation Army like 10 years ago. But we're continuing to produce videos, um, our ministry, but we're putting them on a USB flash drive. So there's 34 videos now. They're about an hour long on all these different kinds of topics. If you would be interested in that, maybe you're not a book reader and you'd rather just stick that thing into your television set 
or into a USB port on your computer or even transfer the videos onto your iPad or iPhone. We'll give you some simple instructions on how to do that. Thought I mentioned that resource as well. Let's go ahead and uh, ready our hearts for communion. Thanks for letting me share with you. I'm going to hand things back over to your assistant pastor. God bless you guys.